Welcome to Once Every Two Weeks, where we dive into a different Owen Wilson movie and count all of his wells and put them in context, ranking our favorite to least favorite usage. Well, all right, all right, all right. Once Every Two Weeks is a look back at music from the 90s through a modern lens and nostalgic twinge. Hosted by two guys who have been friends since high school, join us, Mark and Tom, as we examine old hits, forgotten favorites, and overlooked gems as we dive into the music that got us through all the fun of those awesomely awkward, angst-filled teenage years, one album at a time. I am well. How are you? I, too, am also well. I just want to start off by thanking Columbia Jones again for joining us on last episode. That was really fun. It was. I actually also just had a really fun weekend with him. I flew out to Salt Lake and then drove with him to Telluride, Colorado, where he was competing in the Telluride Blues and Brews Festival Blues Challenge. Wait, wait, wait. Is this a battle of the bands? Do we have an origin story? (laughs) It's a battle of the solo blues artists, so not quite bands. How do you do? The competition was pretty stiff, so I won't say that he got robbed, but he should have won and didn't. Bummer. There were plenty of other great musicians that were there. He was one of six that was selected to compete. But just based off of their criteria that they were supposed to be judged on, I would have given him lower marks in one or two of the categories that carried less weight. In the categories that had large score multipliers, I feel like he did better than everyone else who performed. And so I was surprised and disappointed. And not just because he's my boy. Were you disappointed with the show or were you disappointed in him? I was disappointed in the outcome. (laughs) I was not disappointed in him, but with being a competitor in that, he got a free pass to the festival, but he did not get a plus one. And he only had two or three acts that he wanted to see that were performing after the competition. The competition was first thing Saturday morning. Then he went off to go see Blue Stuff, and I just kind of wandered Telluride, and I discovered that they have a free gondola ride up the mountain. So I went up, and I just found this nice little overlook, sat on the edge of this Black Diamond ski run, and sipped a Coke, and looked out over the valley, and had a lovely afternoon. There are worse places in the world to be by yourself. Absolutely. I wish I had a gondola ride, but I have been living at home amidst the coronavirus. I have not had it. I keep testing negative and don't have symptoms. But fortunately, nobody's too terribly bad. Just hoping they uh, they get better. Ellie tested negative for a couple of days, so she gets to go back to school tomorrow. That's good. I did spend a lot of time this week diving into something a little different. Okay. I spent my time listening to a band that was named after a character in Thelma and Louise called Weeza. Weeza? Is that the name? Well, before we start jumping into episode stuff, which <laughs> I feel like you're trying to... No, I just really have been wanting to tell that joke for like three days now. (laughs) I'm fine with postponing the episode talk. Well, something else that you've been waiting to do was see Dashboard. How did that go for you? I don't want to talk about it. (laughs) Well, then how were the crows? The counting crows were absolutely unbelievable. I could not believe they still rock so hard. And... I have never in my life seen somebody play an accordion and look so absolutely B.A. 
they were just so incredibly good. Adam Duritz, just the way the man emotes, every bit of his soul goes into his music. You mm-hmm. see it on his face, his body, his voice. He really sells it. And for whatever reason, Chris Caraba thinks he's too good to play casinos. So I still have not seen a band that I've been interested in seeing since like 1999. And still no idea why he wasn't at that show? No, the page I bought my tickets, everything, if you go Google Counting Crows, Tulsa, River Spirit Casino, Mm -hmm. it says Counting Crows and Dashboard Confessional. I contacted the the venue because I wasn't happy, and they're like, oh, we never billed it as a dual show. This was a a one-act show. And I'm like, everywhere on the internet says that, and they're like, oh, yeah, that's because that's the rest of the tour. They're doing a tour together, and there were two venues in Oklahoma that Chris Caraba didn't come to. So I guess Chris Caraba feels about Oklahoma like you do, Mark. (laughs) I don't know. It was a bummer. Speaking of people you haven't seen before, how have you never seen the Wheeze? Uh, I don't know. I really have no idea how I have Didn't not seen Didn't you win them. tickets to go to a Weezer concert? No, I won tickets to go to Green Day. Oh, I thought, okay. Because I thought it was Get Up Kids opening for Weezer. No, it's Get Up Kids opening for Green Day. Okay. That's a great story that we will save for when we cover something to write home about. Oh, will we ever? Mm-hmm. Well, then I, uh... Can't wait till we get into the part of this episode where I get to talk about seeing Weezer. (laughs) So we're still talking about Weezer tonight? Yeah, tonight we are covering Pinkerton. Their epic fail of an album. Depending on who you ask. And when you ask them. (laughs) (laughs) That was one of the most surprising things in researching this album was just how varied opinions were and how they normalized out. There's a pretty strong consensus about this album now. I didn't necessarily get into this album when it dropped, but I have friends that are massive Weezer fans, almost on the level of your wife. Yeah. And so it's something that I knew had been a thing that it initially wasn't received well and since has become kind of a cult classic. It really is. And it's a great it's a great album. I like it a lot. Yeah. Uh, But before we jump into the album itself, what do you say we talk a little bit about Weezer, the band? Sure. Weezer was started and kind of run by frontman Rivers Cuomo, who, um, as we'll get in, has a, is very much a likes control of the band. He's learned to ease off a little bit, but he has. In the early days, he was very much the captain of the ship and potentially caused quite a bit of conflict within the band. Correct. Which is kind of surprising given the fact that after being born in Manhattan, he was raised for a while in a Buddhist Zen center in upstate New York and then went to live in Yogaville, where he went by the name Rama instead, which is one of three names we will know him by on this episode. I'd argue potentially four. Four? Ooh, okay. Mm Mm-hmm. So when you look back on his childhood, Rivers was quoted as saying, you have to realize we were living in an enclosed community of Hindus. We lived in an ashram. Isn't that insane? It was a very mellow childhood. So he was in this ashram until he was 10, which really shaped him as a person. Mm -hmm. Rivers' father split when he and his brother leaves were very young, and they were raised by their stepfather. But at 10, the ashram moved to North Carolina, and his family stayed behind, so he entered into public school. I'm sure that was an easy, seamless transition. Obviously, he was never bullied or anything. It was interesting seeing that his teacher described him as, quote, a somber child, Hmm. and was concerned that he never seemed happy. (laughs) Who is... But uh, around this time, he was introduced to a band that would be very influential for him and is mentioned in more than one song, and that's Kiss. Mm -hmm. He fell in love with Kiss, and then he did something that I think every kid in the 90s did, and he joined the Columbia Record Club, which, (laughs) for those of you listening who don't have this recollection, 
as a kid, you thought you were scamming big time. You would join this CD club and you would pay like a penny and you get to pick 12 albums out of the catalog. And then they would scam you. Yeah, you were contractually bound to buy these CDs at like 25 bucks a pop or something ridiculous yep. for X number of months. And they would send them whether you wanted them or not. Yeah, they would send random stuff you didn't even order. If you didn't pick your CD, they would just send you something and then bill you for it. Yep. My mom was so happy when I ordered these and got all my CDs in the mail. <laughs> she was very proud of me for making wise decisions. Surprisingly, I never did the Columbia Record Club, but I did do a similar thing for books. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And that's how I discovered Neil Gaiman before everyone else. One of the first things that they sent me was Neverwhere. I had never read Neverwhere. I am literally reading that right now, Mark. I have two copies and the BBC production series on DVD. And it's bad. I would expect nothing less. But wonderful because of how bad BBC it is. So yeah, I got Neverwhere in like seventh grade and read that. And I was like, I am sold on this guy. I've read so much of Neil Gaiman over the years, but I never read Neverwhere. Hmm. And I saw it at the library, and I'm like, you know what? I need something new. So I'm reading Neverwhere. And I really love the whole London Underground scene. It's a pretty great book if you're looking for something to read. Absolutely. But going back to the Columbia Record Club, do you know what Rivers bought? No. He bought every Kiss album. Makes sense. Yeah. And he bought Eddie Rabbit, ABBA, and Queen. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. As we can see, music is taking up a bigger space in River's life. But he's still a scrawny kind of nerdy kid in public schools named River. He is. And he and his brother changed their names to more normal names. And they used their stepfather's last name. River went by Peter Kitts. Kitts being his stepdad's last name. And he used it because it was so close to Peter Chris. <laughs> Does that mean Rivers wants to be a cat? I think so. Okay. <laughs> For his 14th birthday... Rivers got his first guitar, which was a Stratocaster knockoff, which I think that's almost everybody's first guitar. It was not mine. Oh, I did forget that you had a guitar for a little while. I did. I had the weird black, like heavy metal looking X guitar that my dad bought. Right. It was so weird. While we were in Telluride, the Blues Challenge was sponsored by the Telluride Music Company, which is a small local guitar shop. And they have a bunch of high-end guitars in Columbia. Got really, really, really close to buying a $3,000 guitar that he fell in love with. Oh. And while the salesman is trying to talk to him, he's like, you know, we buy gear. So if you have anything, and when I chimed in, how much will you pay me for my beat up old first act? He completely ignored me. <laughs> So, in 1984, Rivers, his brother, leaves, and his best friend, Justin Fisher, and another friend named Eric, started a band called Fury. They played their first show in September of 1984. Throughout high school, Rivers and Justin were into heavy metal. Rivers remained obsessed with Kiss, and they were nerdy metalheads who were also into comic books and D&D. Not helping the bullying situation at all. No. It's kind of ridiculous how much things have changed. Right? Like, the number one TV show in the world is all based on Dungeons & Dragons. But in the 80s and 90s, you'd be a total nerd. There was a review that I read for Hum that interviewed people at a show. And one person was like, I'd never heard this band before. But then Matt quoted Obi-Wan Kenobi from stage, and I felt at home. <laughs> It seems so almost like a dream that there would ever be a time now where Star Wars wasn't a popular or cool thing to like. 
1989, Rivers and his band, now called Avant Garde, moved to LA and they changed their name to Zoom. And they're undergoing a an identity change because Rivers is ditching metal. He just feels like the heavy metal scene doesn't feel relevant anymore. And around this time, Rivers starts yet another new band called Fuzz before finally becoming Weezer. Mark, you know where the name Weezer comes from, right? And it's not Thelma and Louise. Correct. We touched on this briefly in the One Hit Wonder Roundup. We did. And Weezer is the name that his biological father called him. That's quality parenting. And so that's why we have four names that we know him as. Okay, that's fair. Because Weezer isn't just the band. It's Rivers himself. Which I suppose does maybe in a way, well, not necessarily justify, but makes it understandable why he would feel so personally invested and be in such control of this thing that bears his name, as it were. That, and I think Rivers is continually pushing himself towards excellence. Mm -hmm. That has so much to do with the band that I think we should wait until we're talking Weezer as a whole. I will just say one thing about Rivers before we go on. Okay. Rivers was known as a big pervert. (laughs) Very misogynistic and sex-crazed, which is going to be very important for this album because there's so much of him coming to terms with that. Mm Mm-hmm. He was known to be really into especially Japanese girls, and while touring, he began engaging in a lot of adult activities, and he wrote an essay called A Mad and Furious Master. Hmm. Something I remember was this really crappy GeoCities-looking website from the late 90s called Rivers El Pervo. (laughs) I have never heard of this one, so I'm going to have to look it up in the Wayback Machine. You should. It's just about basically his modus operandi, how he would send people out who would go talk to girls, and he would invite them back and... And he would just ask them blatantly if they were going to sleep with him. And most of them would. But he was in a room full of girls once where he told them all if they wanted to stick around, they had to remove all of their clothing. And he was surprised, but four of them stuck around and did it. And I imagine, though, going from his upbringing, uh-huh. just from that to L.A., there's a massive culture shock. Then actually forming an incredible, successful band that then the people who wanted to associate with someone famous was something that he probably was just like girls have never been interested in me before and i don't know what to do with it now that they're willing to do whatever just because i'm in a band that's on the radio also considering the influence of being into bands like kiss being his number one band you look at gene simmons behavior towards women and it doesn't excuse the behavior but that's all rivers had to look up to a lot of the things that we see as we're going through these albums when i'm going back and looking at music videos or listening to songs i'm reminded of do you know what bluey is have we talked about this i'll just say no it's an australian kids show okay about this blue healer bluey it's hilarious mm-hmm. but there's this whole episode where it's a flashback of the dad to the 90s and every time they're talking about like the kids with no helmets he's like yeah but it was a different time it was the 90s same thing when they're talking like bullies oh yeah i bullied my brother but it was the 80s i feel that way about a lot of this i'm like okay that was the 90s like that's what bands were doing it's not saying not making an excuse or saying it's right but i think i think you're on to something there and I think we're, we're going to hit on a lot of these themes when we yeah. get the songs, though, too. Some of his stuff is extremely sophomoric and childish, but there's some real depth there. Right. The next band member we're going to talk about is Matt Sharp, mm-hmm. who Christine was a fan of as well, my wife, who I wish was on here talking to us. I was really hoping she was here because I wanted to ask her, Matt, Mikey, or Scott? Matt. I figured probably Matt, yeah. Uh, I did not know until we did this that Matt was born in Bangkok, Thailand. I didn't know that either until I saw that in your notes. 
before he moved to Arlington, Virginia at one, and then grew up in San Diego in his later high school years. Okay. I also didn't know, based on the bands that he's in, that he spent time in a goth band (laughs) called Click (laughs) and co-founded a band called 60 Wrong Sausages with other future Weezer members, Patrick Wilson and Jason Cropper. That's a fun name. I like that. 60 Wrong Sausages? Yeah, I don't know how you come up with that, but I'm glad they did. I am too, but I don't know how you you strike out on 60 sausages in a row. (laughs) I feel like it's hard to screw up a sausage. Tom Green finds a way. Oh my gosh. The band that formed right before Weezer with Rivers was Fuzz, also included Matt Sharp. Okay. And I thought it was really interesting, too, that Matt, Rivers, and Patrick Wilson, who we'll talk about in a minute, all shared an apartment together for a while, Hmm. while Matt was living his best life working as a telemarketer. Someone's got to pay the bills. Rivers told Matt they had one year to get a record deal before he would go to Berklee School of Music, which he did by pitching their demo titled The Kitchen Tape, which included a June 1993 version of saving so hmm. during this same time matt formed a side band that has some notoriety were you a rentals fan yeah i like the rentals and i do look forward to us covering return of the rentals at some point in the not too distant future me too i wasn't a terribly big rentals fan but christine got me more into the rentals when we were dating uh, it's a great album Patrick Wilson, roommate number three, was born in Buffalo and raised in Clarence. I thought it was interesting. He went to his first concert at 15 to see Van Halen, which got him really interested in the drums. And in high school, he started teaching drums with his friend Greg, and they had 30 students paying them money to learn to play the drums. Wow. Who comes out of a Van Halen concert saying, I want to play drums? (laughs) Right. You go see Van Halen, you come out and be like, I want to shred. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway. If you are going to drop out of college, Patrick did it the right way by then moving to L.A. and joining a band. He joined Bush. He joined a Bush. But not that Bush. When I first saw it, I was like, Bush isn't from Los Angeles. And it wasn't even the Canadian Bush. No, this was a third Bush. Then he met Matt Sharp, and Matt Sharp was able to tempt him away from Bush with 60 wrong sausages. (laughs) And then he became friends with Rivers and joined Fuzz. I thought it was interesting when I learned that he started out just doing drums, but later would do some guitar and sing backup. He was a founding member on the drums, and it was decades before Rivers finally let him have a microphone, which is probably why he decided that in addition to Weezer to start a side project, The Special Goodness. And he also played drums with Matt in the rentals on their first album. We did have a brief stint with a guy named Jason Cropper. By the time we get to the Blue album, he's out. So he's not worth mentioning right now. Brian Bell steps in. He was born in Iowa City, Iowa, and raised in Knoxville, Tennessee. His interest in music started at age four after he saw Elvis in concert and became obsessed with his dad's records. He would play his dad's records all the time. I'm not the biggest Elvis fan, but I'm jealous that he saw an Elvis concert. I'm jealous that I was not at the wedding that you officiated dressed as Elvis. You mean in Las Vegas at a Taco Bell? Yep. Like Rivers, Brian Bell played guitar in high school, started taking lessons his freshman year. His parents didn't take his interest in music seriously, and they wouldn't let him take lessons until he was in high school. Wow. I know, right? Good parenting. But once he finally started playing, he was in a band called Blue Shroom with some friends he worked with as a pizza delivery man. The band was self-described as Pink Floyd meets the Three Stooges. I would pay money to see that. I'd at least watch a video on YouTube of that. Right? And also, 
deciding against college, he moved to L.A., where he became the bass player of the band Carnival Art. Eh, it's not nearly as good of a name as 60 Wrong Sausages. <laughs> <laughs> that may be in my list of top band names ever now. While with Carnival Art, he came across Weezer, of whom he said, They started playing on the scene, and I instantly saw something unique in them. I didn't necessarily want to be in their band. They were, for some reason, in the wrong crowd and playing at the wrong venues. I wanted to help them out any way I could, and I wanted to play a show with them. So apparently Brian Bell is not a Dogstar fan. <laughs> Wait, are we talking about Dogstar again from our one-hit wonders? No, we're talking about Dogstar from the cast of Speed. <laughs> I thought Weezer opened for them. Weezer closed for them. Weezer did the late set. Well, they played together. I don't think it was a setup where there was necessarily a opener or a closer. L.A. does weird things where they don't really worry about putting actual shows together. They just give you a slot whether it makes sense that you're playing before or after somebody that's a fit or not. Playing L.A. is never as fun or glamorous as it sounds. I always found it to be kind of a hassle. Anyway, in mid-1993, Brian Bell quit Carnival Art, and one day at home, he found a message on his answer machine from Weezer bassist Matt Sharp. Sharp then called again the next day, and Rivers took the phone away from him to ask Bell if he would join their band. And the rest is history. One other thing that I will add about Brian Bell, I don't know what your personal feelings on Brian Bell are, but I've kind of always seen him as the American Johnny Greenwood. Okay. In that it's this super handsome guitar player in this fairly successful band who might be too handsome to be in a band and not be a front man. <laughs> so Weezer went in and they recorded what would become the Blue Album in 14 days. The creative differences got untenable and Jason Cooper was out and they brought in Brian Bell. But after ditching Jason, Rivers went in and took all of the vocals from Jason out and all of the rhythm guitar and then laid down the rhythm guitar for the entire album in a single day. But the liner notes credit Brian Bell. And their first album did get some success, especially with the song Buddy Holly. But Rivers wasn't happy about that being their rise to success because he said it was gimmicky. Mm -hmm. And so he does what any good musician does. He leaves, flies across the country, enrolls at Harvard University, and studies classical composition because he thought Weezer needed to be less simplistic. One other thing that was interesting, though, with that initial rise to fame and the disappointment with it is with having the level of success that he did playing his own music, playing it night after night after night to the radio-friendly pop rock crowds, he didn't feel like he was being fulfilled as an artist, as a musician, as an appreciator of music in general. He's then, as kind of his post-show ritual, he was listening to a lot of opera to feed that void in him left by just a rock and roll existence. And specifically, the one that he kept going back to most was Madame Butterfly, which then in turn ended up being very influential on this album. It did. But before we come to Pinkerton, Rivers had this grand idea for a rock opera. I think that having that post-show opera ritual, that probably put him in a headspace where doing a rock opera seemed like the obvious choice of where to move to find fulfillment. Yep. I found an interesting article from Vice titled, Weezer's Lost Science Fiction Rock Opera is Better Than Almost Anything They've Released in the Last 15 Years. <laughs> When was this certain? Because that can either be a very bold claim or one that makes a lot of sense. This was originally 2014. Oh, wow. 
I know. I mean, I would understand 10 years, but if you're doing last 15 years, that includes both the green and red albums, which were fantastic. Yep. But basically, we learned that the story was focused around a very specific theme in 2126. The spaceship Betsy 2, which is taken from the name of Weezer's first tour bus, Betsy, would embark on a galaxy-wide mission in a Rolling Stone article back in 2007. River says that the whole thing was really an analogy for taking off, going out on the road, and up the charts with a rock band, which is what was happening to me at the time and i was writing this and feeling that i was lost in space the ship's crew were to be voiced by musicians who would play characters and tell the story exactly like a musical weezer members brian bell and matt sharp would play some of the happy crew thrilled about the intergalactic adventure symbolizing the side of Cuomo that was excited about the success and he himself would play the ship's captain with mixed feelings along the way he'd run into two women voiced by rachel hayden of the rentals and joan vosser of the dam builders whose roles mirrored his real life relationships the story would conclude with Rivers reaching his destination and feeling disillusioned, longing to return to something simpler. Quote, basically, the concept was bat crap crazy ridiculous. Oh, but aren't all the great concept records? They are. So Rivers was born like a regular child, but as he grew, his legs grew irregularly. And by the time he hit adulthood, his left leg was 44 millimeters shorter than his right. And since the Blue Album was successful enough to give him money, he was able to have surgery to get that fixed. And it was a very extreme procedure, part of which involved doctors breaking the bone and stretching the leg out to the right length. And the recovery was long and painful, and he spent a lot of it, obviously, on painkillers and in very interesting headspaces as a result of that. As he puts it, I had this really painful surgical procedure on my leg, which lasted 13 months in all. It took me to a place, emotionally, where the whole idea of this whole rock opera started to feel too whimsical for where I was emotionally, going through the pain of the procedure. And so I scrapped the whole idea and went to a more serious and dark place. However, it wasn't a complete waste of time as he was able to use songs, Get You, Tired of Sex, No Other One, and Why Bother, that he had written for that space rock opera, which has come to be known as Songs from the Black Hole. So they pivot and they write Pinkerton, which is based on the a character from the opera Madame Butterfly. Which in its own right is still kind of a concept album. Oh, for sure. hundred percent. But the origin of the name, as we learn in the Pinkerton Diaries, is this pivotal character in Madame Butterfly. In the Pinkerton Diaries, Rivers says that Pinkerton was an a-hole American sailor similar to a touring rock star who was, quote, the perfect symbol for the part of myself I'm trying to come to terms with in this album. Now, what are the Pinkerton Diaries? The Pinkerton Diaries were, it's a book that Rivers wrote. That are just a compilation of his diary entries from the period that he was making Pinkerton? Yep, the book covers the years from 1994 to 1997, beginning the day that the Blue Album was released. And there are videos of Rivers reading from his diaries, which are kind of cool. Unlike other albums, the production of this is a little different. Who produced this album, Mark? Well, I'm guessing if you were to read the Pinkerton Diaries, you would notice that it was produced by the band themselves. It was. They figured if they wanted to get their own sound, that they would be the best ones to produce it. Right. Because as good as the Blue Album sounded, they didn't think that it was an honest representation of their sound because it was a little too clean, a little too polished, a little too pretty. Which was not the headspace that Rivers was in. So that makes sense. It does. And since they did it themselves, 
They kind of recorded it all over the place. They did. During September of 95 and January through June of 96, they recorded at the Sound City in L.A. and Ford Apache Studios in Boston and the Hollywood Sound Recorders in Los Angeles. They also recorded at Rumbo Recorders in Canoga Park, Electric Lady Studios in New York, and all of the mixing was finally done at Ocean Way Recording. I guess it's kind of hard when your front man is going back and forth and also recording around his college schedule. The cover is a couple of huts in a small village that's kind of in some snow-covered Japanese mountain scene. And it's a very traditional Japanese art style to it. Makes sense when you're referencing the Madame Butterfly influence and the fact that that whole opera is set in Japan. Yep. So I'm curious if you know, was the cover of this an original piece for the album, or was this a pre-existing piece of art that they found for the album? It was derived from Kambara Yuri no Yuki, which is the night snow at Kambara. And it is from a scene from the Japanese artist Hiroshigi's 1830s series, 53 Stations of Tokaido. It is not an original piece for this. The artwork is edited. The colors are changed from what the original artist had. Okay, so it is cleaned up and a little fairly sparse with the colors. They released Pinkerton on September 24th, 1996 on DGC. This did not get the critical acclaim that the label had hoped, though. Yeah, it debuted at only 19 on the Billboard 200. But the first week was also when it peaked. They only sold 47,000 albums in the first week, too. Mark's favorite magazine, we have to give them credit. They originally, in 1996, were one of the higher ratings. They gave it a 7.5 out of 10. And in 2010, in retrospect, they gave it a solid 10. So Pitchfork says the album is way harder than the last one, and I miss the instant impact because Pinkerton takes a few listens to get into. Which is not to say it won't rock your world. In fact, by listen number three, you're on the ground with pop spasms. With that in mind, Pinkerton might actually be a bit much for fans who were wooed with the clean production and immediately accessible sound of these guys' debut, but if given a chance, it might surprise even some anti-Weezer folks. No, Rolling Stone, as is their fashion when Pitchfork actually has something to say, picks up the slack here. And according to a reader poll, Pinkerton was ranked as the third worst album of 1996. I don't know what else came out in 96, but I find that hard to be true. <laughs> the Rolling Stone review only gave it a 3.5 out of 5. And they said... Although no one in the band originally hails from Southern California, Weezer have got the sound and attitude of early 60s Los Angeles down. Melodies bounce with vigor, and the lyrics help us just a sunshiny day away. There's still plenty of Weezer's signature dorkiness on Pinkerton. What you get is true to the sun and fun aesthetic of great jangly pop. Which that seems weird in a review that seems to not like it. Right? Spin gave it a 5 out of 5 at the time. But Ray Marcano of the Dayton Daily News gave it a one out of five stars. And I'm just going to read his whole review. Hey, boys and girls, can you say one hit wonders? If so, then follow it with Weezer. The band's second release, Pinkerton from DGC, clearly shows Weezer is headed to the graveyard of forgettable bands. Pinkerton is 10 loud, grating songs that are supposed to pass as rock, but sound like trains going over rusty tracks. Three of the four band members say they do, quote, vocals, but it's hard to tell with the off-key sometimes out-of-range wailing. This follow-up is a tremendous disappointment. Consider the hit the Weezers are known for, Buddy Holly, was catchy and its video unique, but not this time. Pinkerton fails miserably. 
See, right there, you know, dude's just talking out of his ass because he says that it's ten loud grating songs. It's nine loud grating songs and an acoustic track at the end. <laughs> I will say that you're right that most of the reviews were negative, but there were one or two positive things out there. Entertainment Weekly gave the album a B, and they said that Pinkerton sounds like a collection of get-down party anthems for agoraphobics. <laughs> That's why Christine likes it so much. <laughs> Looking back at Pinkerton a few years afterwards, Rivers was really pleased with what they had done, right? He had a similar vibe to Robert Smith when we talked about The Cure. Well, at least Robert looking back at Wild Mood Swings. (laughs) Well played. Rivers said, It's a hideous record. It was such a hugely painful mistake that happened in front of hundreds of thousands of people and continues to happen on a grander and grander scale and just won't go away. It's like getting really drunk at a party and spilling your guts in front of everyone and feeling incredibly great and cathartic about it, and then waking up the next morning and realizing what a complete fool you made of yourself. Huh. And I don't know. I think he's maybe being a little hard on himself. Well, and this is before it hit the cult status, too, I think. I don't know. If this was in 2001, I think this is like kind of right as it was kind of starting to peek into that. He gave that interview around the time the, the Green Album would have been either released or about to drop. And by that point, they're getting back together and they're making new music, partly because the fans have proven that they love them. So it's kind of weird that as he's starting to get some validation, he's turning on it. Yeah, and now he's just covering Toto's song, so whatever, Rivers. (laughs) Before we get into the play-by-play, I figure that since Rivers is willing to badmouth his own band in the spirit of looking at other people doing it, few have done it as well as the hard times have. And so I just figured that we might want to take a minute to acknowledge some of their wonderful headlines and see if you have a favorite of the batch. Trip to Sherwood-Williams inspires 300 new Weezer albums. The next Weezer. This band consistently releases new material, but most of it sucks. Every outfit on a Weezer album cover ranked by how likely I am to wear it to my sister's wedding. Weezer included in fine print disclaimer of festival lineup. Weezer's entire set ironic versions of their own songs how to write your own Weezer song since you hate all their new ones? Okay, I've got my favorite one. We spoke to Rivers Cuomo about what it's like to be a teen growing up in 2021. My favorite, hands down, I just want someone to love me the way Weezer fans hate Weezer. (laughs) There's two that are relevant that we should read given um, what we're working on right now. Okay. An opinion by Justin Cox, an opinion piece. Opinion, Pinkerton was the second Weezer record of all time. (laughs) And... (laughs) By Peter Woods, the original reviews for Pinkerton were underappreciated literary classics way ahead of their time. (laughs) On the deluxe edition of Pinkerton, there's a track that features a segment from Weezer on a radio show, and they're taking calls from the public. And one caller calls in and very bluntly and inelegantly addresses what he claims to be the disparity between the albums. <laughs> he sounds super high, but he's like, you know how the Blue Album was cool, but it sucked? <laughs> to which everyone kind of laughs. And while he's fumbling over how to word the follow-up to the thought, the band suggests that Pinkerton sucked but was cool. And so the caller moves on to say, it feels like they paid $2,000 for the first album and 500 for the second, which someone in the band joked that it cost a lot of money to sound that bad. But Rivers explains, when we went to make our first album, we were all very nervous and we wanted it to sound good. So I think we were in the wrong frame of mind. We were making sure everything was perfect and it came out sounding a bit sterile, I think. 
he then goes on to explain that it wasn't their intent with Pinkerton for it to sound more raw, as people like to describe it, but it was just in hopes that the band would sound more natural and more like themselves. And to me, I do think they sound like themselves. Yeah, I do too. I don't get all of the hate on them sounding different. Pinkerton on the whole, I don't think that feels all that far from the self-titled album that people claim it does. No, and I think we're going to hit on that, how some of it ties back to and connects with the first album. So the album opens with some lovely feedback and then a couple of notes hitting on the bell of the ride, which is a cymbal. It counts the band in and the song kicks off with drums and a keyboard melody that the guitars are quick to join and Rivers delivers the opening lives of Pinkerton. I'm tired, so tired. And what is he tired of, Tom? Coitus. That's right. The first track on the album is called Tired of Sex. And he bemoans how he is tired of it, but I like where he ends up landing. His real concern is that he is lacking love, which is interesting. He's he's acknowledging all of this as like empty, meaningless actions when he says, why can't I be making love come true? Mm-hmm. Now, to his credit on this one, as he's singing the words, I'm tired, so tired, his vocal delivery, he does sound a little worn out, maybe a little out of breath. But by the end of the first chorus, he unleashes some impressive wails. And the second verse is delivered with feeling, and there's just a good energy that keeps building after that second chorus. And the guitars go off on a nice soaring solo. And all in all, I think Tired of Sex opens Pinkerton with a very similar energy and leaves the listener in a very similar place as the Blue Album opener, My Name is Jonas. Absolutely. We've got that same, like, that scream high intensity with My Name is Wakefield. Yeah. And that rock energy carries over to track two. Kachoo! Bless you. Yes, I've been waiting to do that since we started talking Pinkerton. <laughs> Get You was originally called Get You. Huh. Originally, it was spelled G-I-T-C-H-O-O. And when it went to the album, it was G-E-T-C-H-O-O. Ah. Track two, I guess, might be where people start to claim it has a darker feel to it because it does have a good, strong, heavy guitar tone. Mm -hmm. But then again, it's not really anything more than they had on In the Garage. It's pretty much the exact tone, just with a lot more fuzz to it. I have a quote here from a dude on the Weezer subreddit that kind of described how I felt about it. It was part of a thread about songs that were originally for From the Black Hole. Tractor Scum said, At my first listen of Pinkerton, it was the only song I didn't like. The hook just bothered me, along with the uh uh-huh part. Usually I'd skip it, but then I decided to listen to the whole thing and I fell in love. The bridge with the descending notes into the solo is amazing, and the, quote, this is beginning to hurt part ends the song so well. So yeah, I did a huge 180 on Get You, and the title is pretty cool. (laughs) Before researching the album for this episode, I knew where the Pinkerton title came from, but I guess I didn't know or just hadn't put together how big of a part that Madame Butterfly played in where River's headspace was at the time. Yeah. So while I'm not going to argue that this album is a very personal and autobiographical thing for Rivers, I do still think that it could simultaneously be more of a concept album paralleled by his interpretation of the Pinkerton character than most people tend to address when exploring the lyrics. Yeah, I read that when I was looking over your notes and I thought, you know, that makes sense. I think it serves both purposes, that introspective look, but also him making that connection to Pinkerton. Absolutely. And especially here, 
in this one, it's all about the conflict between an inexperienced, insecure, neurotic guy butting heads with the jerk rock star image. And as I was thinking about that, I kind of had this thought that maybe that's really why the album wasn't initially embraced, because no one likes self-reflection. And this song specifically, and a lot of the rest of the album, makes the listener kind of take a look at themselves and their own relationships and their own behaviors when confronted by Rivers' blunt and kind of open, honest examination of his own internal darker side. And so instead of embracing the self-examination, it's easier to just vilify Rivers, say the album sucks, and move on. Yeah, makes sense. I hadn't thought about it in those terms, and I need to give it some more thought, but I've been really struggling with trying to figure out why it was so poorly received, but embraced generally by everybody since. But in this, I really like the progression, general storytelling of the song. Mm-hmm. How we start with the, this is beginning to hurt. He goes through all the problems he's having, what he does wrong. What we're seeing here is he's coming to terms with who he is and how he feels about himself, right? Yeah. And at the end, we've got just the repetition of the pain that, that it brought. It brought pain like no other one. Track three, no other one. Track three, no other one was written in July 1994. And like a lot of the music on here, the timing and the keys he plays in are off. It's not what we expect typically from Weezer. This one is played in three quarter time. Now, when you say off, I think you mean they're just non-traditional. Different. It's not non-traditional. It's not, it's not that he's necessarily playing off key or out of time. No, no. It's just a different timing. Like this one's three, four time. And other songs that he does are in keys that we're not used to hearing Weezer play in. So this song is about a character called Jonas. And Jonas is another side of Rizzers who's uncertain and upset with the way his rock star life is unfolding. And this Jonas character, this alternate person, is the captain of the ship in Songs from the Black Hole. Okay. This is a weird song. And this song is originally about this character realizing that he wants to be with this girl after she gives birth to his daughter. Okay. So he was on the fence up until that point about the relationship. Yeah. That's interesting context. It is interesting context. Not knowing that beforehand, looking at the song, what I really want to know is just as a standalone thing, how did none of the reviews address how No Other One feels pretty much like a repackaging of Blue Album track No One Else? (laughs) Or at least an incredibly heartbreaking continuation to the narrative of that Blue Album track. (laughs) This one opens My Girl's a Liar. Right. While No One Else opens My Girl's Got a Big Mouth. They're both about him staying in relationships that don't sound super healthy. Lyrical comparisons aside. The music doesn't sound the same. No, the guitars are nice and heavy. On this one, the pace is a little slower. And by no means it's a sleeper. And you don't necessarily consciously think of it as a slower song. But you do certainly notice that the tempo has dropped once we make that jump to the next track. You do. You really pick up on that 3-4 timing. If you pay attention to timed signatures, personally, I say, why bother? (laughs) Track four. Why bother? It's super upbeat. Yeah, it is. Up-tempo, it's poppy, and it has great dynamic from the solid rock vibe of the verse to an instant shift in the chorus, where in addition to the tonal shift in the lyrics, the guitars pretty much just shift from the melody to a nice, simple quarter note rhythm that lyrical shift each verse is kind of him talking to a girl as it were about trying to get with her and then once it hits the chorus he just kind of shifts and gives up 
and says, why bother? It's going to hurt me. It's going to kill when you desert me. This happened to me twice before. It won't happen to me anymore. Well, that's a bummer. This song was, interestingly enough, written before the Blue Album, but not included on the Blue Album. And on the original pressing for Pinkerton, there was a sticker that included Why Bother, but it was never released as a single. Hmm. And it's one of the two times on this album that we hear Brian Bell doing a guitar solo. Nice. I'm going back to subreddit for Weezer and found it's been a year or two said it's a steamrolling rock and roll powerhouse somehow chugging and sprinting at the same time. It's a passion filled tune grappling with self-confidence, loneliness, past relationships affecting future behavior and with truly funny turns of phrases. All this in about two minutes. A masterpiece. That's another thing. This whole album is short. It is. I don't think I've ever thought about it as necessarily feeling overly short. Maybe because, in my mind, the Green Album holds that title. That's a short album. <laughs> that is over very quickly. It's kind of neat. If you get the deluxe Pinkerton album, you can see the handwritten lyrics from Rivers for Why Bother. Right from your very own home. You don't have to venture across the sea to find it. Uh, Song five. Across the Sea. Across the Sea opens with a soft piano melody and light flute mixed in, so it sounds kind of distant and overall has a Far East vibe. That fades out quickly and are promptly replaced by some electric guitar distortion and the piano comes back in and the guitar now accompanies it as Rivers enters singing. Then the piano cuts again as the bass and drums enter, and on the whole, the song throughout is pretty dynamic musically. There's a nice bridge around 120, it builds nicely into the second chorus and comes out of that into a nice soloing guitar section, only for everyone to drop out and get soft and start the third verse kind of quiet. Then it builds up to an even higher point than they hit on the second verse, and it feels very akin to the swelling build of the musical climax from Only in Dreams, which I guess you could say makes sense, since this track is the longest on Pinkerton, just like Only in Dreams is the longest on the Blue Album. The song was written while Rivers was at Harvard and was a key turning point when going from songs from the black hole to Pinkerton. It was written after Rivers received a fan from a young girl in Japan who asked him questions about his life. He said he fell in love with this girl even though he didn't know her. And when he was looking back in 2006 about this, he said he didn't know anything about her and never contacted her. What's interesting about that story is that despite the eventual recognition that Pinkerton got for being a pretty good album, people still occasionally like to hate on it. And especially in a modern setting, it's very much criticized with words like problematic, which is usually used in proximity to this song. However, not to say that Rivers didn't have issues. We touched on that a little bit earlier, but the song does open up stating that the girl is 18. So if he wrote it now at 50, sure, it would be very Woody Allen icky. <laughs> but he was 23, 24 when he wrote it. So it's a lot more age appropriate, I think, than people like to acknowledge. And it's not surprising when you mention that he never got in touch with her because he states in the lyrics, I could never touch you. I think it would be wrong. So despite some of his more questionable behaviors, he still somewhere inside does have boundaries. So despite what we assumed, you're making the case that Rivers Cuomo has a moral compass. Yeah. And he even knows it. He's on this album letting himself ignore it intentionally. Right. 
before the album came out, he wrote a letter to the Weezer fan club in which he states that there are some lyrics on the album that you might think are mean or sexist. I feel genuinely bad if anyone feels hurt by my lyrics, but I really wanted these songs to be an exploration of my dark side. All the parts of myself that I was either afraid or embarrassed to think about before. So there's some pretty nasty stuff on there. Yeah. You may be more willing to forgive the mean lyrics if you see them as passing low points on a larger story. And this album really is a story. The story of the last two years of my life. And as you're probably well aware, these have been two very weird years. <laughs> if you're not aware, please pause, go listen to the album, and come back. And also re-listen to the first half of this episode where we explain why it's weird. <laughs> but yeah, I think generally that in addition to that initial lack of respect, the album continues to just kind of be unfairly... Maligned? Yeah, hated on because people like to hate. Weezer, unfortunately, has just become an easy thing to hate on. It's really interesting. The guitar solos contain a relatively complex chord progression. The key modulates going from G major to E major, which is a parallel major of the original key's relative minor. Mm -hmm. The following bridge remains in the key of E major, then modulates back to G for the final verse and chorus. It's a fan favorite, and uh, several people consider this to be their favorite Weezer song. And on a lot of the lists I looked at, it's definitely in the top three for most. Sometimes when people are listening to this, they just uh, feel like they're living the good life. <laughs> Track six, The Good Life. This was their second single from their second album. And fun fact, the cover art for the physical release of The Good Life as a single is a picture of Rivers performing with the band in front of a crowd in a Tower Records parking lot on Pinkerton's release day. In attendance at that release concert and visible in that cover photo was a young man named Daniel Brummel, who was a founding member of the band Ozma. Ooh, you were an Ozma fan. I, I do like Ozma. Were they the opener when we saw Not a Surf? They sure were. I thought so. Ozma was invited to tour and open for Weezer in both 2001 and 2002. Additionally, Brummel co-wrote a track with Rivers for Weezer's 2014 album, Everything Will Be Alright in the End. He also toured with the band as a supporting musician, so he helped fill in additional musical parts because by that point, Rivers had stopped being a tyrannical dick and let other people in the band do other things, like Patrick got to play guitar. Also, in 2016, he served as the touring bassist for Not A Surf. Oh, cool. Uh, so throughout the song, you can tell Rivers is wanting more. He's not happy with where he is. He's saying, it's time to get back. It's time to get back. And I don't even know how I got off track. I want to get back. Yeah. I don't want to be an old man anymore. It's been a year or two since I was on the floor. Shaking booty, making sweet love all night. It's time to get back to the good life. But he also talks in here about being in pain. And we see he's bitter. He's not happy. He's just, he's really upset with where he is in life. Uh, he says, I can't even get around without an old man cane. I fall and hit the ground, shivering in the cold. I'm bitter and alone. But he wants to get back to shaking booty. Who doesn't? So yeah, you can definitely see how much that has to do with that surgery and recovery and where he was at. That was a pretty big defining time for Rivers in general. Absolutely. And what I think I find most interesting about this song is, like you said, kind of on that chorus about how he wants to get back on track. There's that recognition of the place he's at and the place he wants to be. And yet, does he get there following the release of this? 
does he get back in track? No. Despite the recognition and that statement following the release of this, he, for some reason, still withdraws and isolates further. Yep. Which is kind of a sad turn of events. It really is. Sadly, I think a lot of that is due to the low reception and all of the bad reviews. Rolling Stone was not a fan. However, with regards to the song, in one of their reviews, they still made claim that The Good Life was catchier than Syphilis. Which, I just learned, is making a dramatic comeback. Syphilis, not The Good Life. Okay. Is Syphilis one of those VDs that comes with a burning sensation? I don't know. I don't know if it's El Scorcho or not. Track 7, El Scorcho. We mentioned earlier that there were two songs where you get to hear Brian Bell play some guitar. This is that second track. Nice. It also features Bell's first outing doing more vocal work than mere harmonies, as during the bridge he sings additional vocal lines to River's part. Way to up your game, Brian Bell. This is probably the song everybody remembers from the album when they first think of it, right? Because of that very poignant opening line. Well, that and it was the lead single for the album. It was. However, with where Rivers' headspace was at, he very much wanted to make sure to not make another Buddy Holly-level high-concept video. And so with the one they made for this, MTV hardly bothered with it at all. Which, if MTV wants to be pretentious gatekeepers, that's their business. But what really hurt both the song and the album as a whole was that a lot of radio stations decided that they couldn't be bothered to play the song, which doesn't make any sense because it is easily the most fun song on the album. It's catchy, it gets stuck in your head, and it is great for an obnoxious (laughs) sing-along. It is a mildly offensive opener. So the song opens up with a gargling noise, followed by a few drum hits, and then a simple guitar melody starts. Rivers isn't, he's not trying to sound great or going for great vocal harmonies on this one, but it's a performance full of dynamic passion and backed by random vocalization. Mm -hmm. The guitar riff was originally written by Rivers back in the spring of 92 for another song that never got finished. So he used it as part of another track that was meant for songs from the Black Hole before that got abandoned. And then finally, the third time was a charm, Or it would have been if anyone outside of Australia cared about this song. Did it rank in Australia? Yeah, despite doing nothing anywhere else in the world, Australia liked the song. And it was ranked by Australia's music authority, which is called Triple J. It was their number nine rock song of the year. Whoa. Based off of listener demand. For a song that got virtually no airplay here. Yeah. That's crazy, man. Australia gets it. (laughs) This one includes a handful of lines lyrically that rivers has attributed to other sources like i am the epitome of public enemy which is a line from public enemies don't believe the hype beyond that both lines watching grunge like drop new jack through a press table and listening to chocho san fall in love all over again are lines that rivers has attributed to a harvard classmate from an essay that they wrote as part of their expository writing class but the rest of the insecure neurosis filled lines are all pure rivers 
From Weezerpedia, which is where we got a lot of our notes. Like the Puccini opera, this album includes other references to Japan, Japanese people and half Japanese people and Japanese cultures from the perspective of an outsider who considers Japan fragile and sensual. And all of this is very much at play in the lyric for the song, especially considering Chocho San is a reference to and name of the female lead from Madame Butterfly. Mm-hmm. But the origin of this title itself is much less serious. Where did the name come from? So inspiration for El Scorcho came from a packet of hot sauce from Del Taco. They have a flavor called Del Scorcho. Drop the D and there you go. One other line in the song references the band Green Day. It says, I asked you to go to the Green Day concert. You said you'd never heard of them. How cool is that? Over the years, Weezer has been known to change that line and replace the Green Day reference with the name of other bands, usually whoever they happen to be playing with. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. So it opens up with an offensive, GD, you half Japanese girls do it to me every time. Mm -hmm. I'm willing to bet that's part of the reason the song did not get a lot of play. Mm, possibly it also didn't do any favors to the song or the album that the day before it was supposed to drop the pinkerton agency filed a injunction against the band trying to get them to scrap the release because they claimed copyright infringement over the use of the word pinkerton what's cool about that story if i remember correctly rivers wrote like a five or six page brief explaining why he chose the name pinkerton and that was part of the reason that the case was dismissed right yeah he wrote a six-page paper that all laid out how it has nothing to do with the Pinkerton Agency, which has never been on the wrong side of history, and <laughs> laid out in depth all of the connections to the Madame Butterfly opera and its influence, and considering the artwork, considering the themes throughout, it very much is a no-brainer, and the whole thing, yeah, Judge dismissed it quickly. As should have happened. Absolutely. It was a happy ending for the band, which was in desperate need of a win. Okay, let's go now to Pink Triangle. For those of you who are unaware, the Pink Triangle is a reference to one of the numerous symbols the Nazis would associate with people, and it was the symbol given to homosexual men in concentration camps to identify them. This song is pretty straightforward and somewhat autobiographical for Rivers, so it's Rivers was into a girl. He liked her a lot. He wanted to date her, but she was a lesbian. Or was she? The twist of the story is about a year and a half after the song was released, Rivers found out that the former Harvard classmate he'd been crushing on until he thought he had no chance turned out, in fact, to not be a lesbian at all. She had just taken up to wearing a pink triangle to show support for the gay community. This was the third single from the album. But sadly, it wasn't successful enough to give the album new life or save the day. I always thought this was a fun song. Yeah. When he sings, the chorus part is, I'm dumb, she's a lesbian, I thought I'd found the one. We were good as married in my mind, but married in my mind's no good. Oh, pink triangle on her sleeve, let me know the truth. Let me know the truth. This is another one that people have cited as being problematic in a modern context. It's and not. I was thinking about that as I was listening to this over and over, prepping for this episode. And at no point does he disparage her for it. If anything, considering where society is at with willingness or its lack of willingness to acknowledge the gay community, the fact that he's singing the song and he's like, I like this girl, but she's living a different lifestyle. I guess I'll move on. That's it. He doesn't say there's anything wrong with her for it. Oh, it's him just being being a goober. I like that description because I think that's perfectly it. 
But regardless of the lyrical intent, Pink Triangle ends musically with some distortion and the main melody of the song seamlessly shifts into the opening melody of track nine, which is Falling For You. Falling For You. As the intro guitar part is being picked up, you can hear a woman's voice speaking. However, what she's saying is in Korean and not Japanese. And that's because it wasn't planned at all. And it wasn't added after the fact. During the recording sessions, River's amp was picking up sporadic radio interference. And upon review, when considering the themes at play throughout the album, even though it's not Japanese, he still considered it as close to an act of God as he could hope for from a happy accident and left it in rather than trying to edit out or re-record the part. Hmm, That's interesting. Now, you've talked about on other songs the complexities of their songwriting and their guitar work. Uh Uh-huh. And I read a few different things in my research for the album that all talked about how this song is not just the most complex of the album, but also one of the most complex in the Weezer catalog. And there's some impressive playing techniques that they use or whatever. But what I really enjoy about the song, and what no one bothered to mention, is how much feedback there is and how well it's used throughout the rest of the album there's moments where rivers lets loose vocally to drive points home and on this one there's a handful of moments where the feedback accentuates all of that fancy guitar work to give it some additional texture and that little extra oomph I like how it starts out and how many exclamations we have. Holy cow, holy moly, holy sweet something. And we're back to shaking. This was a continuation of El Scorcho, and it's about the same girl as El Scorcho. But this is when he actually works up the nerve to engage with her. He's actually falling for her, so it's like El Scorcho part two. But this is like the love that he's wanted, the more than just meaningless physical relationships. We're getting full circle. We're seeing the development of him as a person and how he's seeing himself. That's what I'm getting out of it. Okay, yeah. Cool. Okay. So now we're on to the last song, Butterfly. Yes. Track 10, which is the biggest departure from the established Weezer sound and the only song that I would admit that doesn't fit right in when mixed with other songs from the Blue Album. However, it's not for it being too dark or heavy or whatever else Pinkerton was lazily dismissed as by people who couldn't be bothered to turn their ears on when they were listening to it but rather because this is a soft and fragile acoustic closer. From the opera, Madame Butterfly, the name of the female lead is Cho Cho San, which translates to Butterfly. And this song really plays up the dual-edged sword of Pinkerton being River's own personal confessional and maintaining a solemn thematic parallel to Puccini's opera. In addition to being the last track on the album... It was also the last track recorded for Pinkerton, and Dave Friedman, who was an engineer for Pinkerton, he's told some stories over the years about it, and one thing that he said is that Rivers kept telling me the whole time we were recording, I've got this other song, but we're just going to wait till the time is right. And apparently the right time was 4 a.m. on the last night. He finished the first take, and that was the first I'd heard it, and I just got on the talk back and said... You sure you want to say that to people? (laughs) And he was like, yeah, I'm sure. And I'm like, okay, good. I was like, that's amazing, but I can't believe you're being this honest and open and unguarded in life, let alone on a record that's about to go out. And then apparently they did it all over again because it's the second of the two takes that was used on the album. However, the first was released as part of the Pinkerton Deluxe Edition years later. 
On the Weezer subreddit, I looked at a listing of everybody's top rated or how they rank their songs from Pinkerton. And this one is typically in the bottom. That's insane. This is a really good song. This one doesn't rank very well. Well, that falls in line with my theory about wanting to ignore self-reflection and vulnerability. That's kind of what I was thinking when I was looking back at those two being at the bottom. Because this is very much him coming to terms with hurting somebody. Yeah, with those darker elements of himself. But also, like we said, playing up the parallel to the actions of the Pinkerton character. 100%. This one, it's short. I think I'll just read it. Yesterday, I went outside with my mama's mason jar. Caught a lovely butterfly. When I woke up today, looked in on my fairy pet, no more sighing in her breast. I'm sorry for what I did. I did what my body told me to. I didn't mean to do you harm. Every time I pin down what I think I want, it slips away. The ghost slips away. Smell you on my hand for days. I can't wash away your scent. If I'm a dog, then you're a bitch. I guess you're as real as me. Maybe I can live with that. Maybe I need fantasy. Life of chasing butterfly. And then he repeats, I'm sorry for what I did. I did what my body told me to. I didn't mean to do you harm. Every time I pin down what I think I want, it slips away. The ghost slips away. I told you I would return when the robin makes his nest. But I ain't never coming back. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's sad. It is. But it's also kind of beautiful and brutal and honest. Yeah. And it's a nice closing point. Now, you saw Weezer, and I haven't, right? I did. I caught them November 26th, 2001, in San Antonio. It was during their tour with Jimmy World and Tenacious D. However, I didn't drive to San Antonio nearly as fast that time as I did for the Beastie Boys show. And we got there right as Jimmy World were playing their final notes, which was sad. However, at that point, I'd already seen them a couple of times, so it wasn't the end of the world. But what was sad is that for that show, Matt Sharp was already out of the band. So I didn't get to see Matt perform with Weezer. Now, Matt left because of some creative differences with the rest of the band Mm -hmm. after Pinkerton. Right. And he went full-time into the rentals. Right. Because... Since Pinkerton was such an honest thing for Rivers, and it wasn't well-received, Rivers took it really hard and descended kind of into Howard Hughes-esque levels of madness. He shut himself off, kind of became a recluse, stopped talking to everybody, and that's not very productive for working as a group. No, not at all. So yeah, it was was a hard time for everyone, and like you said, Matt left— A lot of that was the result of, like we said, those negative reviews, which, again, I found interesting that everyone talked about they didn't like it because it was different and darker and the album was raw. And looking back on it, it kind of reminds me of when Weezer released Maladroit, how everyone talked about this was Rivers returning to shredding. And there's some heavier guitar tones on that album, but not nearly as much as I expected by how much that was talked about. And maybe we benefit from being able to look back at their catalog from a much broader place with exposure to a lot more Weezer music. But the two things that struck me while critically listening to Pinkerton lately is, as I've already said, it doesn't really sound that far from where the Blue album is. Yeah. I think people blew that way out of proportion. And the second being that while that shift may seem subtle in the overall Weezer catalog, it is much more apparent when you instead look at how the 
sound of Pinkerton was influential for a band like Ozma. And you listen to their first couple of studio albums like The Double Donkey Disc and Rock and Roll Part 3 and how much those sound like Pinkerton clones more so than trying to sound like Weezer on the whole. It is interesting how the album has continued to grow. Talking about the longevity of the interest in Pinkerton, it took 20 years, but in September of 2016, Pinkerton finally hit certified platinum status. Slow and steady. Yep. Makes me think that maybe I'm being too hard on their newer stuff, and I'll revisit it in 20 years and see if I'm willing to tolerate it then. (laughs) But in that spirit, Weezer's continued to put out a lot of albums. Some of them have been great. I think Make Believe is grossly underrated and overlooked, maybe because it opens with Beverly Hills, which is a song that shouldn't exist at all, but the rest of the album is fantastic. The Red Album was great, and... There might be as many Weezer albums now as there are hard time headlines criticizing Weezer. <laughs> but I think regardless of how good of an album this and the blue album and the red album and the green album are, the best hard times headline and not just about Weezer was man time travels to September 10th, 2001 to warn everyone that Weezer sucks now. <laughs> That's wrong, man. It would be, but like you said, now Rivers is just covering Toto's Africa. Oh, okay. Are we ready to do our favorites? Yes. Uh, I'm going to jump in and go. I have no problem with that. I am going to go with number three, El Scorcho. Okay. Number two, Falling for You. All right. And I think my favorite is Across the Sea. Hmm. Nice. What you got? Number three is Butterfly. Oh, Okay. Number two is El Scorcho. Okay. And number one is Tired of Sex. As you have failed to mention on any other track on this album, that song slaps. (laughs) It does. And with that, we wrap up our Weezer album. What are we covering next time? In a fortnight, we will be covering Adore by the Smashing Pumpkins. Nice. Visit our website, onceeverytwoweeks.com, to find links to our social medias and leave us a comment saying what your favorite track from pinkerton is whether you think pinkerton holds up whether you think it is problematic or just to make fun of tom and we'll see you next time thank you for listening once every two weeks is sponsored in part by burrow baracho records and the geek lounge